uh, we're good to go for uh, episode three, season one. Season one, episode three. I guess we're starting with the season. Uh, and so today we have a guest, Courtney, right? Yeah. We have April. April's Hi. Eight. She is a, uh, what well, you are a dev advocate now for Microsoft, right? Is that yes, I am. Okay. Tell, tell us more about that. What, what does it mean to be a dev advocate? Because we have, I'm sure, a lot of like listeners that have no idea about that space. Yes, yeah, so I can speak to what it means to be a developer, developer advocate with Microsoft. I'm not sure if it might be a little different with other companies, but with Microsoft, uh, one of our goals is to help expose different audiences to the products that we have, um, primarily being Azure, uh, but there are other areas as well that people do uh, focus on. But that exposure can be in the forms of a variety of different content mediums, whether that's writing blog posts or speaking at events, hosting workshops, doing YouTube videos, streaming on platforms such as Twitch or even streaming on YouTube, for example. And so our job is to, to, to meet our users and our customers and potential users wherever they are and to introduce them to the different product, products that we have, but also to actually show them how to uh, integrate our products with whatever projects that they're working on too. So I would say our, our goal, our role is probably about mm, 70 to 80% content and uh, with a heavy focus on community engagement because so, we engage a lot. <laughs> so I, I want to stop you there because I think um, this is a big thing in the like Instagram influencer world, right? Like there's there's mm -hmm. bloggers, there's influencers, and those have been around for quite a while, right? Bloggers, yeah. are, to me, bloggers are like the original influencers. Yeah, they um, are. Somebody had a strong blog, like, you know, Joel Spolsky, right? Famous blog, uh, Coding Horror, right? Jeff Atwood, like famous, uh, programming blog. Um, in your mind, I, and I don't understand this. I don't. I don't get it. Like, are influencers and content creators different than a dev advocate? Like, or is it just a fancy way of saying that you're like a, basically an influencer for a particular technology? I honestly feel like it falls under the same umbrella, and that there's just different terms that you can use, if you will, to uh, to classify who you are, what you want to label yourself as, because like influencers who, I can't even put all influencers under one bucket <laughs> either to yeah, be honest right. with you, because some do have that in-depth knowledge of whatever their focus area is. So if you want to like take a step back and not even think about tech, but um, if you have like, I don't know, uh, like makeup influencers, for example, they know a lot about makeup. And so the same thing for those of us who are developer advocates, for example, we have a great deal of knowledge in our focus areas as well. And so where I think things um, continue to be a little more synonymous is that just like influencers, influencers who typically have an entire team that they work with, developer advocates are the same way. We have an entire team that we also work with as well. And it's not just us that's just running things, we're an entire team. But I know sometimes the word influencers has a negative connotation to some people, whereas I personally love influencers. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there's um, there's probably yeah. many of it. We follow like many different interests, right? We have different hobbies, and yeah. we're probably all like influenced by those people who are leading that that, yeah. that genre, right? 
Yeah. Like gaming so, is a big one, right? Oh, like yes. There's, there's streamers yeah. that have built their whole careers on that, and they're not maybe they're not employed by a company. You know, they're, right. they're, I mean, they're sponsored yeah, the by companies. But biggest they names, started. right? Yeah. Ninja. You, you think about like the stuff that he does and how many followers he has. Mm-hmm. Which is, which is crazy. And like, I feel like even like him, he's been on with Jenny Fallon like a thousand times, I feel. <laughs> yeah, and then, <laughs> you, know? and then you, you right. have like, you know, look at the um, Ryan's Toys review on YouTube, right? Oh, yes. Um, that yes. family, you know, got like famous because of little toy reviews. And like now it's blown up. He has his own to- toy line. Like, um, so it, it was like not, it's not company driven, I guess. It was more just like an individual had an interest and they mm-hmm. chased after it. And then now they happen to be an influencer in that space, which I find is kind of interesting because like a lot of the companies are coming at it from like, hey, we know this person that's really great with our tech. Let's like actually make them officially right. one of our people, right? Well, it's yeah. Like, you know, all the, the food bloggers or food influencers, a lot of them actually like really enjoy doing what they're doing. Yeah. Right. It's like somebody has passion for food and they're, are they a food influencer? Same. I, I think to me, developer advocates are some of the most passionate people about yeah. the technology and the space they're in. Yeah. And like, I would even say, at least what I've observed for people who are typically successful, if you will, um, influencers, it does come from a place, a place of passion. They didn't just wake up and say, I want to be an influencer. But then I feel like for those who have seen what being an influencer has brought others and they say, I want to be an influencer, I personally feel like they have a a more difficult time reaching that level of whatever success means for them in their eyes because they're doing it from a different place. They're not quite doing it from a a place of passion necessarily. I think they're doing it from a place of clout and trying to be famous. Right. And the results end up being different. And I think for the space that you know we all work in in tech, a lot of us who are developer advocates, it does come from a, from a, a place of passion and a place of, I really like this product. Even I would say, even if I didn't work for, you know, insert tech company name here, I would still talk about this product, you know? And that's when you can truly find who is passionate about whatever the technology is. And I, and I feel that a lot of developer advocates they um, they are more so on that side of just being super passionate about whatever their focus areas are. Right. I love that you made easy. that distinction because I feel like I see you doing this. Um, you know, when I met you, you know, you were a PM and you actually moved into dev advocacy. But even before that, you were doing like side projects with certain technologies. Yeah. And right now you're building some really cool, like you're exploring virtual reality, right? Like you're actually yeah. like building virtual environments, which I think is you know, totally kick ass. Like, that's awesome. Oh, thanks. You know what I'm saying? Like, you're, you're just playing with it. It's just having fun with the technology. And like, um, you're not, when you start to focus on content creation, that's when it really starts to feel like a job, right? Mm-hmm. Like, man, mm-hmm. I'm, I got to get this out, right? And right. I got to get this yeah. post out. And that's when it becomes less fun. And I don't think you start to create good content that way. And, and it's very um, easy right. to tell when somebody is, is selling to you, right? Like, if I see somebody's yeah. content that is kind of their passion comes through to it, be it, you know, for food or mixed reality or anything where I see, wow, this person really enjoys what they're doing versus somebody yeah. just writes something or puts a video out for selling a product that has nothing to do with what they enjoy doing, nothing to do with what they actually like in life. Right. Yeah. And I would say, the, I think for me personally, the way I know that I was just passionate um, with what I'm doing now was just the fact that everything that I was learning and then even when I was starting to like talk about it more, I was doing it 
for fun and I wasn't doing it for a profit. I wasn't expecting anything to come out of it financially. And I remember before I switched over to doing stuff within spatial and extended reality, I was doing more with Python. And at that time, I was just creating YouTube videos around that just for fun after work hours, not even getting paid for it. And I remember someone at a conference came up to me and they were asking how much money that I make from doing that. And I was like, oh, I'm just doing it for fun. It's like a while ago. I said, oh, I'm just doing it for fun. And like, he couldn't get it through his head that I wasn't making money. He's like, <laughs> no, how do you really make money? How, how are yeah. you really uh, doing this? Yeah. Yeah. And to me, like to me, it seemed like simple where it's like, no, I'm doing this because I love it. And I want to help others also learn in a way that I felt would be a bit more approachable compared to just other means that I found on the internet, but just, he just didn't understand. And I think not to say that, you know, we should all do everything we love for free and like never get income from it. But I feel that's a really good signifier of whether or not you're actually truly passionate about something. Mm -hmm. Because if you could see yourself doing it every single day and not expecting you know, the world in return for it, then that's probably something that you are really passionate about. And that's how I've come to realize just doing different things with technology, uh, primarily the areas that I personally like to work in, those are things that I started off doing not as work requirements and I often have to, I often find myself trying to get that through people's heads that I was doing this all for fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then it happened to turn into this, yeah, like an actual yes. full-time gig, right? Yeah. So yeah, which is like even better. This is great, great segue because you mentioned Python and you're working on a book or you, yes. you actually have a book. It's done, right? It's a children's book, uh, yes. Bite Size Python. An introduction yes. to Python programming, which is awesome. Um, Thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about that book? Like you said, you've been working on this. It's been a passion project. Um, what inspired you to work on it? Uh, what's driving you? Are you? And is there another book coming? Okay. So this was a nice segue because it piggybacks on what I just said. So I mentioned just a moment ago, I started doing YouTube videos to help teach Python. And the reason why I started those videos was because when I was learning, I've come to realize that I learn best by reiterating whatever I just learned. And that's usually in the form of teaching. So I can't remember the exact phrase on a paraphrase, but I think it's, um, I think it was a Thomas Edison. Someone said to the effect of, you can't explain it simply, then you don't know it at all. And so I always approach, I always take that approach when I'm learning something. So I started doing the YouTube videos and then um, from there, I just got really more involved with the Python community just online. And I would say last spring, I happened to just check my email and I had an email from my now publisher and it was the acquisitions editor who had inquired if I ever thought about writing a, uh, a Python's children book. And I literally thought the email was fake. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> to the point where like I went catfish style on LinkedIn trying to look him up to make sure that he was real because I'm just like who in the world is playing in my inbox this must be a fake email so you had but, just had you just had the video content out there yeah that's all time. I had yeah and he had really liked my teaching style and so after I like I personally verified that like oh this is a real person who works for um for Wiley I responded back and 
I would have to say it was a bit serendipitous in the fact that when the year had started, I had told myself I had wanted to put out more Python videos, but I was just internally struggling with like how I wanted that strategy to be. And I had went on ahead and made like an entire like uh, uh, content strategy of the different areas I would cover as well as like which videos I would do. But then I, life got busy, so I never actually got to put out all the content I wanted, but I still had this plan. So when he had inquired if I had, if I had thought about writing a book, I was just like, well, yeah, this is perfect. Because in my head, I'm thinking, well, I already have this content strategy of what I would have did for a YouTube series. Mm -hmm. That now is not going to waste because now all that is going to just be transitioned into writing the book instead. And then not to mention, now I don't have to record, um, you know, a whole bunch more videos for YouTube, which then, there. yeah, because, you know, there. So I agreed. And what I had to do from there was actually write up um, just what the, like an outline of what the book would be. I had to also approach it from a marketing perspective of like what makes my book different. I had to take time looking at other Python books uh, for children as well. How Just did you like have to change your teaching style or narrative for children, right? Because I think the oh my gosh, yeah. audience can be tough <laughs> right? graphic. Like, they might not have the understanding level or some base knowledge. Like yeah. that mind shift, right? You have to really understand your reader. Understand yeah. the correct like import statements and how you structure them properly. How do you use Pilot for children? <laughs> <laughs> right. So I, I would say it was definitely a big switch in how I approach speaking with children because in all of my years I've worked in tech, when I used to do training for teams, it was, um, I would say like our parents' generation. That was my original audience of people that actually taught tech too, if you will. And then um, when I started doing my YouTube videos, I switched it more so to like our generation. And then now with children, that's like a step even lower than that. <laughs> and I've, I've had to really try to balance a line between using the correct terminology because you don't want to introduce false, you know, terminology around Python because that's not helping anyone. But then I also had to make sure that I was explaining things in a way that we're using vocabulary that probably is in line with where they are um, school-wise. So I've had some instances throughout my book where I've gotten feedback from the editor uh, insisting that I change some wording here or there. But fortunately, the editors for my book, they I have two. I have a technical editor, and then I have um, I'm calling it the regular editor. I'm not sure the proper the proper name, but they both have children. And okay. so as they're going through the book, their children are also going through the book too. And their children are within the age range for the book. So we're ensuring that we are actually using, uh, you know, the audience to You're read along notes from and the to make sure hey, okay. pretty much, you know, <laughs> which is like, it's helpful. And sometimes you do find yourself when you're reading feedback from the editor and it's just like, okay, well, how else am I supposed to explain this without, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, like, there, like there's no other way to explain it. But then, yeah, there's that, um, there's that like edge of like, I can't oversimplify this and I can't introduce yeah. things that are wrong because it's going to mess up their, you know, future learning on the subject. But yeah, you got to stay and like, the, the text, right? And yeah, and even 
even like um, things like writing examples in the book or like projects, because I have a project in just about every chapter of the book. So even making the projects age appropriate, because I feel that when you go to any of the platforms that exist now for learning different programming languages, there are many projects here and there, but I feel like they more so make sense for um, a different audience age-wise. But when you're writing project examples for children, you have to make sure they align with something that children actually uh, can relate to. And there's even been instances where I've given examples of how to do things in Python and code snippets, and I've used things like TV shows that I've added in as mm -hmm. well. So you, it's, it's really a matter of understanding the audience. I think it also helps that I just personally never grew up. So I can understand a lot of like what makes sense <laughs> for that uh, for that audience. But I will say it's it's not something that it's like was super easy for me to do because like I'm not around children all day, yeah. you know. So it's uh, it, it it was a challenge, I would say. <laughs> there's, a, there's also a notion here that like kids are really motivated by, and the, this kind of aligns probably well with many projects that um, a lot of developers or anybody interested in the subject area, um, they become self-taught because they have a particular thing they want to execute or they want to mm -hmm. accomplish, right? Like say, uh, you know, giving an example from the last show, like I was talking about, I wanted to build StarCraft custom maps. Well, I had to learn scripting to do that. Yeah. So like the, the means to an end, it's like inadvertently I learned programming, but that was because I had a goal in mind. Um, like, how did you set up your your lessons, right? Like, you want to have um, exercises that are maybe uh, interesting enough to want to do and, like, exciting enough mm -hmm. to see how maybe you can take that same principle and do your own project with it, right? Like, yeah. what was one of your favorite projects from the book that you set up? Uh, I would say, oh, man, that's a good question. I've been writing this book since last summer, so I'm <laughs> trying to think through all the, the projects that I have in the book. Um, I would say this one was super simple and I can't remember which chapter it was in and it may have been in my chapter for either, I think for four loops, I want to say. Mm -hmm. And it was focused around like picking teams for like a kickball team, I want to say. And oh. it, it, it like it came down to like whoever the two, to like the two captains were and then those two captains I think it couldn't have been a four loop chapter because I think I ended up storing all the players inside of a list, I wanna say, that might or might not be right. I can't remember. Don't put the, all the strongest people on the same team. <laughs> right, <laughs> that, that right, right. So I'm, I'm trying to think, I know it was that one. I had another one that I actually really liked and this one I did um, in my dictionary chapter, it was around like auditioning for like a school play and it was like a sign up. So using input, whoever was interested in signing up, they signed up, they gave their name, they picked whatever part they were uh, trying out for. And mm -hmm. then I made it, I made the scenario where it's just like only X amount of people can audition in a day. So once, um, you know, once this limit has been reached, then the in, then the uh, the sign up sheet is like closed, and then everything prints out. So you're you're bringing in a lot of different elements. I think that one I brought in like uh, definitely dictionaries. I think that one definitely the for loops um, using input as well. But it was Wonderful. more so one of those things where it's just like a real life situation in school because you do have kids that are auditioning for plays, for example. You have like you know like the drama club and stuff. 
And it's a way to show that, hey, you can introduce things like this, like this sort of like sign up process, if you will, in your actual school real life situation. A real scenario. Like you can yeah. solve a real problem with everything I'm teaching you. You can yeah. piece these things together and start to build like, yeah, like you need a tool. Like I can do that. You know, I can. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I would say trying to, to your point you just made, trying to present projects that can help show you can solve these real world problems, but also projects that identify the possibility of seeing how certain things could work. So for example, one of my more recent projects was on creating, um, it was like managing like checking accounts at a bank. And so like using classes to create different um, objects for like bank accounts and mm -hmm. then being able to have a function that does withdrawals, a function that does deposits, and then just showing like, this might not be 100% how banks have implemented it, <laughs> But in, in theory, like this is how you can actually see how such a thing might exist. Might, might come together. Like the yeah. Yeah. Could, yeah. Could come together with that. Yeah. So um, I will say one thing I've come to learn is writing examples is hard. And if, if you've ever been in a position where you have to come up with examples that might not go too deep in the weeds, or, um, or aren't too simple. That's another thing I struggled with as well when writing this book. And honestly, I would have to spend like, um, I think the last chapter of my book, the day I thought I was going to write it, I realized I didn't have a good project example. And I think I sat on it for like two weeks to come up with a project <laughs> for the book <laughs> because it takes time, you know, and you really want to think it through. And then like the moment where I actually had an idea of like what I wanted to be, I'm going to show you because I think I still have it on my phone. I'll try to put it up in the camera, but I was in bed. It had to have been about, I don't know, um, 10, 11 at night. Can you see this? Um, this I can see yeah. your uh, key light. Let me see. Yeah. Scoot oh, sorry. There we go. There we go. <laughs> I literally hand wrote all the code for the project. Wow. I was in bed at that moment. And I was like, I got to get all this down right now. In I love that you yes. too. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say in the best like, ID. And that's how you know you know your stuff <laughs> when you don't need IntelliSense. You don't need yes. those With It uh, just works. Autocorrect enabled. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. April, we worked on uh, API documentation before you became a developer advocate. And examples yeah. are hard i mean yeah. the number one request that we hear from developers is i just want examples but it's always that dilemma precisely of what you mentioned where i want an example to be to the point and show me exactly how to do this yeah. but at the same time a lot of examples have so many dependencies like oh if i'm uploading something to a storage account mm -hmm. i need to install this library but now if i bring up this library i probably need to explain why this library is mm -hmm. there and so you have this kind of chain of like how do you simplify it but not at the same time miss the key parts of it. So that that's super challenging. It is. And I would say for the book, uh, I had ran into that a bit as well to the point where I ended up, I would say it worked for the book, but probably not in like outside of the book. But what I ended up doing was if there were concepts that I wanted to ensure I incorporated into the projects, I was only allowed to mention that in the conceptual part of the book, like the actual, uh, all the different, where all the different concepts are. Therefore, the projects don't introduce something brand new in the middle of like nowhere. Because what I feel, honestly, 
Um, if you take like programming out of the picture, math is not my thing. And I feel like growing up, whenever I did like my math quizzes or my math exams, there was always like different questions that out of nowhere brought up stuff that you never went over in class. And maybe you did. <laughs> Inevitably you always. Different, oh yeah. Different, you know? And I just know what that feels like. And I don't like that feeling. And so approaching the book, um, there's that, there's that separation where it's like, here's this project. I'm not going to throw new things at you because right. I want you to feel confident going into it. Now, obviously if you, take children aside and you look more at those of us who actually work at companies and do this for a living in the, in real, in the real life. Yeah. There are going to be times where you, you are going to end up having to do some research in the middle of doing something. But I think from a teaching perspective, like in the book, having that separation was super important, but also to your point, then when you are trying to give examples, you do um, like with my book aside, you do have to be mindful of, is this where I introduced this new concept? Because then, I mean, I feel like you and I may have like discussed this at some point, but it's like, do I now drop in this link where they then go to this other webpage? It's like and deeper diving, like you gotta learn come back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's like, it's, it's, it's like, it's I, I, personally, sometimes like I, when you look for recipes for like cooking something, they're like, and now like bring an Alfredo sauce and you're like, wait, where did this come from? Like, what? You gotta How go make, make Alfredo this? sauce. Yeah, like I, I have no idea, but then it just casually mentions it like it's a normal thing. It's just, you, you should have it ready, right? Like, right. no, I and don't. You should install the Alfredo sauce library. <laughs> it's just like jQuery, you just plug it in and then you can do whatever you need, okay? Right, and, and that's how it feels. And I will say one area where um, that gets really tough is working now in spatial computing. And as I'm even going through different tutorials that I'm following um, outside of what we even have, um, you know, with, with, uh, with Microsoft, when I'm just looking at tutorials in general, it's really hard to sometimes follow because I feel like not everything is written for that beginner. And um, I keep using different terms. I'm just going to call it extended reality. But it's yeah. not really written for that, like, hey, I'm new here person for extended reality because certain things start getting mentioned. And it's just like, well, what the heck is this? And we discussed this because it's being wrote by the people that are building it yeah. usually, right? Because mm -hmm. it's such a yeah. technology that a lot of it is not tailored towards an audience of somebody right. who doesn't have that um it can be it can be very intimidating because I know yeah. for myself when looking when I first was starting with things like machine learning and you hear like yeah just use use like naive Bayes and I was like what this makes right. zero sense for somebody <laughs> that is literally just starting in the field and it, like I and you look at the the research and it shows like here's the mathematical formula that shows you how to use linear regression like I have I have not touched math in years and this makes zero sense for a beginner yeah yeah and. And even I will say on the flip side for someone who is writing that content, um, it can be tough too because there's so much that you want the reader to know. But then it's like the second I mention this one concept, I do kind of got to give some background, but it's like, how deep do I go with mm -hmm. the background that they need to move forward? And then there's always that fear as content writers of, of dropping in a hyperlink to another page somewhere because they might end up never coming back to where things were. And then there's also, it's, 
then sometimes it's also a matter of, am I responsible for going on this deep dive for the reader when I could just give them links to all the different stuff for them to go read? But I feel like that's also doing the reader a disservice too, because now the onus is like truly in their hands and they, and they just might not go take the initiative to go figure it out for themselves. So it's a balancing act. So what I'm hearing is that you really need to have a knack for teaching. Yeah. Like you need to understand yeah. what's, what is important to cover in detail and maybe what's important to just maybe glaze over and continue on with, right. For your yeah. student to understand. And that, that yeah. might be too a disconnect. I mean, we've seen it in um, different like learning platforms too, where the content isn't tailored because maybe it's not tailored by a teacher. You mm -hmm. know, it's, not, it's not wrote mm -hmm. by somebody that really understands the needs of a learner. Yes. Actor, like somebody who doesn't have deep knowledge, it's wrote by, again, the person who's building the technology they have a very solid understanding and they're just basically documenting out what they, what they use to get there. Right. Um, yeah. And like I I learner, have, mod, learner mode is so different than knowing it already, right. Being experienced yeah. or seasoned. And because I just love showing stuff to your point, let's see if I can reach it without stopping everything. What I ended up getting as I'm grabbing from my bookcase was this book, it was suggested online, but designed for how people learn. And I mm -hmm. feel like, books like this, um, variety of other resources just to understand how people learn can really help when you're when you're writing instructional content. And this goes beyond tech. Like, honestly, this this is really good for just if you're teaching anything, but being able to approach it from a a um, more of an instructional point of view, I would say is really helpful because I think sometimes also what happens is when you have someone that just has so much knowledge about something and you want to teach others um, how to use it, they sometimes tend to forget that they themselves at one point didn't know it either. And they also can get into a mindset of the way I'm explaining it is the best way to explain it. And if anyone says otherwise, then they're wrong. And that can be, <laughs> that can be very dangerous too. Um, so I would say just getting a better understanding of the best ways to go about teaching people, but also defining who the audience is too. Because mm -hmm. if you're just, just generically writing, it's kind of hard to say who your writing's for because then it's like, how do you, how do you write if you don't know who the audience is? You know, how do you know what terms you do and don't use? But if you do have an idea up front of who your audience is, it does help drive everything from there because then it helps determine like, how do I phrase things? Yeah, you can um, model everything. You know? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I, as much as I, as much as I love to tell people like go create content, it's it's more than just create content. You do want to have a strategy in mind before you just start, you know, because it's going to drive yeah. everything that you produce or create or publish. Switching gears a little bit here, um, I know, again, part of dev advocacy is like getting out in the world, uh, talking to people, going to conferences. Obviously, uh, COVID-19 and the pandemic has like probably put a, well, it's put a squash on basically any in-conference um, mm -hmm. event. And I know that you were probably planning on going around, drumming up, you know, presentations and talking about this roadshow and everything that you were working on. Um, how has that changed your model of operation? I, I know... You spun up a Twitch channel. I do know that. Mm -hmm. Tell us, tell us that, you know, you're new to this role, but now you're having to t totally change the game plan, right? Yes. So I will say the beauty of this role, and this might be Microsoft specific, I'm not sure, is that we were transitioning into a place where we were definitely ensuring that anything we did has significant impact. 
And if you weren't the type to travel and go to, you know, conference this, conference that, and go on tape, go on stage and talk every single month, that was completely fine. And I fell into that category of, I don't want to go everywhere. I'm perfectly okay if I'm here at home often because I feel like I myself can make a big, a bigger impact digitally versus me going to stages and talking. Now, do I? I don't mind going to conferences. And for this year, I um, I, I think I only really had committed um, job wise to maybe like four total. Mm -hmm. And if you think of that number compared to probably others you may see who's like gone every single like week somewhere, that's a pretty low number. And I'm thankful that there wasn't a requirement for us to always be gone. So I'm technically, I would say, for me, it's business as usual for me because it's the same stuff that I was already doing. Now, those conferences where I was going to go speak, um, all but two so far, well, all but one so far has been moved to be virtual, which is, um, which is like still pending depending on where things happen as the year continues to go. But even having to switch to giving my talks virtually that I was going to do in person, it was different because uh, for an event that's actually coming up in May, I ended up having to record, I had to pre-record everything and then um, edit that video and send it over, which is, uh, you know, it's a little less nerve wracking when, when it's pre-recorded. Mm -hmm because you can you, mess up a little bit, right? Uh, you can mess up a lot because you, you're editing everything when you're done, <laughs> you know, you can mess up everything. And so, um, you know, for that, that wasn't that bad. But then also for me, I started exploring other avenues. And so you mentioned Twitch, for example, and I have been sitting on the idea of doing Twitch ever since um, Build last year, actually, when I met with, um, with uh, Jeff Fritz and I had also had spoke with, um, with um, America and Penelope from uh, Cybercode Twins. And we would just have, it was like a little mini, um, I forgot what they call them, but when it's like a, when it's like a, when it's like a conference session, but it's not like an actual a breakout conference room? session. Like a yeah, it was like that, yeah. And we were talking about Twitch and that's when I started getting interested. But I feel like most humans, there's that fear of just doing stuff live, especially coding. So I didn't actually do it. And I just, every time anyone started talking about Twitch, I was like that fly on the wall that just listened to the conversation. And I would just every so often like raise my hand and ask a question, I feel, up to the point where it was, um, when we approached this year, I was like, okay, I think I wanna do it, I'm not sure. And then I started talking to some more people about it. And then everything with COVID happened. And I'm like, all right, well, People are definitely not going anywhere, so I don't have to worry about whether or not people will tune in because that's another thing that I was worried about is if I stream during the day and most people are at work, are people going to even actually be able to tune in? But now everyone's kind of home. So that pretty much like took away that concern I had. And then also it was a matter of me thinking, okay, I'm doing this by myself. I don't have moderators to moderate the chat. So oh, like, yeah. what do I even do about that? But um, what actually helped that out was before I even started doing my own channel, I had known a couple of people that I actually like trust and I'm genuine friends with that had, that had Twitch streams. And so um, I was chatting with them, going to their streams weekly. Um, sometimes they had like multiple ones throughout the week and just seeing how things were there. Um, that made me feel more comfortable. But then from there, you start to meet other people who just, um, who just uh, consistently just watch streams. 
And so you start to become like virtual friends with them. So then when it came time for me to announce my channel, they were all there to support me as well. And so that made me feel even more confident because I, I, I can't necessarily stream plus moderate plus this plus that plus figure like out why actually this yeah you're working. you're interacting with the audience you're doing mm -hmm. the actual programming or your mm -hmm. content right and mm -hmm. then you happen to watch the chat which yeah, yeah can get quite busy yeah um, it, it can be so i will say now um you know the the nerves and frustrations i initially had those are gone now and even honestly i was i had i had like a list of youtube videos i had wanted to do pre-covid and then once COVID happened, um, I just felt like out of it with like even wanting to do the YouTube videos. And I found Twitch as another um, as another gateway for me to mm. to provide content in the area that I was working in. So I even pivoted from YouTube to Twitch. And um, outside of that, I would say writing content is also still part of what I do. And it's just something that I continue to do as well. So if anything, the, the two things that I would have to say have changed is now migrating over to Twitch, which I recommend if, you're, if you don't want to be a streamer, at least be a watcher, because if you like at least communicating with people, it is a way to communicate with yeah. people daily, like interact daily. So that changed for me. And then also having to um, just give whatever talks I was doing virtually. But Hey, now that you know, I don't have to worry about being nervous getting on stage so is there, because. <laughs> is there a reason? Like, again, I know that Twitch has like the, a massive platform compared to, uh, say, Mixer, mm -hmm. right? Mixer is a Microsoft property. Mm -hmm. um, so, are you co-streaming? Like, are you streaming to both platforms, or are you totally just all on Twitch, all in on Twitch? All on Twitch, and primarily being that from the conversations that I have been in, not as an active participant, <laughs> but as a listener, I know Mixer has a much heavier gaming focus, whereas um, I know Twitch, I would say, started that way, but now you get a little bit of everything on Twitch. And so I, I personally just tend to go where the audience is. And so instead of me trying to, to, to reinvent the wheel and try to like spring up something on a whole different platform where like yeah. I know nothing about, um, I figured it, for me, it made most sense to go where I have friends that have the knowledge of how to use <laughs> the platform. And it's, so and it's just a bigger platform, audience. Like if you're an advocate, yeah. if you're doing advocacy, you want to advertise or, or yeah. be in that space with a bigger population, right? It just kind of makes yeah. sense. Yeah. I just so, find yeah. it curious, like, you know, you have these two competing platforms um, and we have a lot of advocates using it. It's like, what is it because we just don't have like basically a IRL channel? You know, like, why is that? I find it interesting. And, and, and April, you're, yeah. you're also very active on uh, Twitter. Yes. Right. So like, yes. How, how do you rationalize between the, the different channels that you engage your community? Yes. So I've gotten to the point where with Twitter, I've tried to minimize how often I am on there, just given the fact that I've tried to detach from just my phone and social media as much as I can. And I think, I feel like, um, I feel like you may have talked about this one time, Den, whereas I think you go on Twitter on your computer versus just checking on your phone. And so, you know, I've tried that for a while too. And 
after a while, I feel like that kind of just sticks with you. And then you get used to just really only going on this platform when you are on your computer. But there are times now where I do go on on my phone to engage with people. And those moments where I do get on Twitter, it's usually... Mm, it's usually either one to to just give notice of something that's about to happen that I'm working on, probably on a different channel such as Twitch, <laughs> or um, or it's also to look at what other people are doing in the community. And I I uh, one day when I switched teams, I just introduced myself in general to the XR community so I could just meet with people. And I ended up bookmarking like a ton of different um, tweets. I ended up following a, a lot of different people within that area. And now, honestly, my primary use of Twitter now is really where I get my news of what's happening in um, the XR community. And I don't mean necessarily what big companies are doing. It's more so what are people building? Because I find that most interesting, if anything, and it gives me um, a new, um, it, it inspires me personally, but it also helps me drive uh, my content strategy because I like to look at the different projects that people are making and think, hmm, if I was looking at this as a complete and total beginner, is this something that I would want to actually learn how to make? And if so, what do I need to know in order to do that? And then that helps drive what I end up doing um, on, uh, on like Twitch, for example, if I end up writing like um, article on how to do something. But uh, with Twitter, again, I use it just really to see what's happening nowadays, at least what's happening um, in the community is to just, let people know, hey, I'm working on this thing. If you're interested, come check it out. But I super duper seldom engage in um, any sort of like tech battles that are going on <laughs> online. That's like the nicest way. That's the nicest thing I can call them. Yeah, um, yeah. So, you know, there's a different you know. word for that that we're not going to use on this show. But yeah, yeah, I and I it, it drains it drains so much energy for it. It does, and and that's why I stay away because it's. It's one of those things where once you pay attention to it and then once you engage with it, it becomes a time suck. And now you've probably worked yourself up so much that you're upset over something that some person you don't even know responded to. And now next thing you know, five hours have gone by and you've really done nothing. And now you feel horrible. You're like, I'm going to leave this conversation. But yeah, you know, and so the way I see it, it's like, what's the point in even giving into that if I know what the outcome is going to be? And then I feel like sometimes, like, yes, it is good to, you know, I guess, make your point known. But then also what I've come to observe online is um, there's, a, there's a, a healthy number of people who like to engage with emotion instead of fact. And right. when you think Absolutely. about that, it makes it very difficult to have a very thorough conversation with some with someone on a topic because then they start talking about irrelevant things like how they look or they start throwing right. name calling back and forth. And at that point, it's like, okay, this is pointless. So yeah. those are all the reasons why I like to say yeah. <laughs> away from those yeah. conversations um more power to the people who do engage in them but i like to be in control of my emotions and how i feel and i feel the best way i can be in control is just by staying away from those conversations and, and now, that's fantastic have... to curate a community like you're doing with 
your Twitch, right? Where you, mm-hmm. you have a very kind of predefined base of users that love what mm-hmm. you do. They love your content. They engage with you. And if somebody kind of stands out as somebody that's trying to be malicious or somebody is mm-hmm. bad as name called, you can just easily exclude them. Yeah. And then keep it very kind of in a way that keeps you in a way sane, where you're not focused on all these folks that have way too much time on their hands, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and focusing on you and doing things that you love instead of worrying about what others think about, you know, because you're right, there's as many people, there are as many opinions. And mm-hmm. a lot of times when, you know, tabs versus spaces, or should you use this library or this library? It doesn't matter. At the end of the day, mm-hmm. yeah, like it's a tool, right? There's yeah. so many of these religious debates about such minutia i i like i don't, I don't understand why uh you know oh you're using bash instead of zsh or you're using windows instead of linux who cares you're right. using it as a tool you're getting yeah. things done you're building amazing things that help others it, i don't care what you use right i will say one thing that is that twitter is good for that i've come to make use of more lately is if i get stuck on something and I just can't find answer to anything, going to Twitter and asking for help has been like my new Google, like alternative, oh I would say. Hashtag, hashtag lazy web. This, yeah. is, this is what I remember, hashtag yeah, lazy web. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, awesome and, I, I, and, I, and I will say, I know this is going to sound bad because you two are two very nice gentlemen. However, I will say, it kind of feels great when me being a woman, I go and ask a question to the tech community on Twitter because I know every man under the sun is going to respond with a resolution. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to tell you how to do it, right? They're going to... Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it, usually the questions that I ask, they're, they're not necessarily things that people can be condescending about with regards to like their mm-hmm. answer. It's stuff that people do actually know the answers to. And like, I can always guarantee, like if I ask this one question, there'll probably be about five guys that'll chime in within the next like two minutes with an answer. And they'll probably all be different um, answers, which is fine because I can try one and then when one doesn't work, I can move to the next one. Like it, so on and so forth. Yeah. You know? the, the strategy somebody <laughs> told me once is when you want to know the real best solution, you post something that you know is wrong and be yeah. like, oh, I'm just going to do this, guys. And then see how many people say like, no, you're absolutely yeah. wrong. Like, don't yeah. ask, like, <laughs> can yes. I do this? No, yes. just say like, I will do this. Yeah. <laughs> do you have any yeah. like power power user tips there for obviously you have to keep track of a lot of different like threads right and i'm sure you follow Mm -hmm. tons of people um Mm -hmm. i haven't really leveled up my twitter game too much like i'll make i made a list maybe five years ago i don't know i don't use lists a lot either maybe i should um i don't use them either again are you like a a pro Um, i know some people have like all these mechanisms to make sure they're paying attention to the conversations they want to be involved yeah um honestly i try to use lists and what reason why I don't use lists now is because like I couldn't set a list as my default view on Twitter. Had I been able to set like my April curated list of people, then I would just only use that list. But because I couldn't do that, I didn't use lists anymore. So what I tend to do is the moments throughout the day where I do take breaks, that's when I use these scroll through Twitter. And then if something does actually look interesting, that's when I'll like click in more to read the thread. And um, I'll bookmark stuff that I feel is worth me coming back to, which is great. But I'm also one of those people where it's like, once I'm done scrolling, 
I'm done with the conversation. <laughs> so if more comes out of it, then it's by chance that I happen to have been scrolling later and now I saw it again. But um, I tend to use bookmarks a lot. Uh, when something really does catch my eye that I want to come back and revisit later, then I will, I mean, I'll bookmark like crazy and I'll go back to it like at a later time. And it's usually not the same day. It's usually like some random day where I'm just like, oh, someone mentioned something one time about this thing. And then I can go back and look yeah. at it that way. But I, I, I really... As much as I would love to say I have a strategy around now with how I engage with Twitter, usually most conversations are by chance. Um, the algorithm just happened to have placed something in front of my eyes in the midst of my scrolling, and then that's how I'm in on the conversation. Um, honestly, the only conversations I would say that I do follow, if I follow any, is um, it's not even going to be tech-related, is if like something's on TV and everyone's live-tweeting. Those are like the one, <laughs> those are like probably the only conversations I like definitely follow. But anything beyond that outside of tech, um, I don't have the need to follow it primarily being that honestly, once a conversation happens in one circle, then eight people are going to like eight new people will be talking about it to the point where it's just like, well, I don't have to stay up to date with it because everyone's talking about it. And now, you know, it, it's like, I don't have to play catch up because as soon as I open this app, it'll be right there in front of my face anyway. So uh, I, I catch conversations as they happen. And if something seems worth me diving into a bit more, I'll bookmark or I'll actually go through the entire thread usually. I, I think that's a part of the challenge with Twitter is just by the sheer volume of the user base, Mm -hmm. oftentimes a lot of threads become almost noise mm -hmm. where once you see people engaging over and over and over and start like a debate or somebody putting an opinion or it just mm -hmm. like you know that whatever you say is going to be lost i yeah. have experienced that myself where sometimes like these tweets get for odd reasons very popular and then you have you know reply 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 like no matter what you reply people will not see it at that point it's mm -hmm. gone mm -hmm. yeah and that, that really, I will say, for me, another reason like why I just personally just end up not engaging, um, especially in those long, very lengthy conversations, is uh, beyond the fact that my voice might get lost. But then there's also on the flip side, that one person that sees it and they decide to go to town on everything that you've said. So, and then that circles back to my initial point of people debating from a place of emotion rather than a place of facts. And so like, it's a cycle, yeah, you know? Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> and you know, you can't win yeah. that. And oh no, no. And I, and I feel like Twitter is not the place for people who feel like they have to win everything. Because if that's what your goal is with social media, you're just gonna drive yourself crazy. You're going to find yourself very irritable. You'll get upset over every single thing. And honestly, I feel like I have so much more in my life to pay attention to and care about than to sit here and be in back and forth debates with people about stuff. And so like, even now, if I, if I were to come across something that someone says, like even to me that I don't like, um, and I've approached this just with life in general, so it's not even just a social media thing, but like, I truly sit and think like, is it worth me saying something back to them? Because if I say something back to them, what difference is it going to make? Will it improve the situation? Will it take from the situation? Am I just gonna be talking to a brick wall? And usually I feel like it's just not gonna help anything. So um, 
usually I just just dismiss the conversation and then don't say anything else, you know. Um, and I, I more often I just don't engage, you know. Um, Could you imagine I, being like a like you know you got to give props to the people that are managing like large corporate oh, yeah. social media presences, yeah. right? Like yeah, yeah, they I have a that. That they be... have a super tough job. Um, I don't. Yeah, I don't personally know anyone that works in PR for any of the larger companies, but I am one of those people who will like sit on Instagram and scroll through the comments just to see all the like negative stuff that people <laughs> leave because it's like my guilty pleasure on Instagram at least. All the but, burners um, people are trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I really do feel for the people who do have to respond to that. But I feel like even for us, you know, I feel like that's that's something I would say even as an advocate that we do face too because if if there is someone out there in the community that starts to bash you know whatever our area is at let's say Microsoft for example it's like okay do I say something back um, do do I notify someone else because the last thing you want to do is you know be the face of some big scandal that happened on social media because you decided to respond so you do end up having you know, to like tread. Yeah, you start. You have to like tread very, very lightly and very carefully. But then there are some instances where there, there is reason to to step up and say something, especially when you have someone that's sharing false information um, as mm -hmm. well. And I think that's 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 uh, that can be tough, especially for um, for those of us who are advocates, because we are very, for the most part, uh, socially engaged online and. Somehow you you're also in. you're plugged in. You're, you gonna, you're out there. You're exposed, right? Yeah. Like all the time, you're championing something that might be controversial. Mm -hmm. And yep. force respect, too, right? Yeah. So yep. You you have the expectation, right? Because you are the visible. You are the face of a yeah. technology or a product. So when something happens, intuitively, people think, "Oh, who's the first person I think about when I think of, say, product X?" Oh, I go yep. to this person. Who is and the most accessible? Right, and, right. I, and I will say that's my my, and I say this sarcastically. That's my favorite thing is when you get dragged into something. <laughs> you get because, tagged. It's like, why am I tagging uh -huh, this right uh -huh, now? Uh -huh. You wake up one morning and it's like, why is my Twitter not three hundred? What did I do? Yep, and it's all because someone tagged <laughs> Docs Microsoft. Or something. So, <laughs> April, what is one of your <laughs> favorite? Like, what is one of your favorite projects um, or products or? What are you into right now? What's really getting you excited? Um, what are you working on? Yes. So I, um, there's two things. One is I've been creating worlds in alt space VR. I'm unsure if either of you have heard about alt space VR. Yes. I just started using it recently. And when I learned that you can create your own custom worlds in Unity, my mind instantly went to Sims build mode. So I'm basically treating alt space <laughs> VR as the Sims right now. Oh my which God. is like take build 2020, right? Um, what'd all, you say? You're, you're on the project team to take build 2020 all digital, right? So you're gonna build a VR space to everybody. <laughs> so everyone can, can, can come to build, right? So yeah, so I've been working on building uh, custom worlds for alt space with a longer term goal of hopefully at some point hosting events in there in those different uh, worlds that I create and, and having people come by them. But then the other thing that I'm working on, I just started working on recently is, um, so I started learning French and I, 
every time I'm learning something new, I like to bring technology into it. So I have recently integrated um, Azure Custom Vision into a HoloLens 2 app, whereas I'm able to, if I had the HoloLens on, look at an object in like my space and then um, it'll provide a label to let me know like what that object is in French, for example. Oh, that's so awesome. that's that the app at like super low level, like in terms of features, because you don't want to put all the features at the beginning. So <laughs> that's like the, the beginning of what, it, what, what it'll be. But I'm really excited for that because um, I've wanted to use um, some of our cognitive services, like products for stuff, but I've never really had a chance to like actually sit and build out something with it. And so um, I'm essentially repurposing a tutorial that we already had um, on Docs that shows you like how to use that in your projects, but then I'm adding more to it so that way the app eventually will be able to, to say whatever it's looking at, but say it in French as well. And um, I think it's pretty cool, but I also like it because every time I create something, I write up about how to go do it. And then I just throw everything on GitHub. So that way, if there are people out there that also want to um, repurpose whatever it is for their own whatever, then they can, um, you know, they can go grab the code themselves. They can walk through how to do it and then they can add it to their own projects. And that's like that's what that's what makes me happy and that's like a big part of of what i do anyway with my job so um i i, I really love it but those are the two that's awesome though because right it's now. a it's a it's a problem you have right you're learning french yeah. and it's like it'd be nice to just be able to look at things and see what it's called yeah this is absolutely fantastic yeah so and oh, thank you april i have the last question for you and that is for somebody that is getting into the industry for somebody that wants to be a developer advocate for somebody that wants to be a product manager like you are what do they need to do what would you recommend them that work well in your experience that help you kind of propel yourself to where you are today i will say being very vocal about what your goals are and that is really what jump-started everything for me because you can do all the learning you want, you can, you can take all the courses, you can get all the degrees, yada, yada, yada. But if people don't know what your goals are, people then can't help you reach those goals. People can't suggest trying this route. People can't suggest, hey, try this product. People can't make suggestions around, hey, attend this event. If you just stay to yourself and just never share what your goals are, there's a lot that you're missing out on. And for me, starting out uh, when I switched into tech, during my interview, I made it very clear that even though what I was applying for was an internship, my goal was for something permanent. And then upon being hired, literally that was how my internship went, was preparing for the permanent position because my manager knew that and we always checked in on that. And then from there, as career continued to happen, um, if you even want to fast forward all the way now to where we are or where I am now with my role um, with Microsoft, um, I, I took part in a mentorship program and I shared all my goals with my mentor, who was then in return able to share like a vast amount of knowledge of stuff that I would need to know to get to the next step of where I wanted to be. And that was really, really helpful because then from there, I was able to prepare myself for different areas that I needed to strengthen. I was able to, um, I was able to figure out, okay, these are the different things that I need to learn. I was able to um, touch base with people that I needed to know as well that was working in that space. 
Um, and it was all because I spoke up. And mm -hmm. I know that's not the easiest thing for everyone to do because some people are just naturally shy. Some people feel a little weird about telling people what their goals are because they, they think it'll, um, it'll jinx whatever it is that they want. And I totally understand and get that. But at the same time, people can't help you get to where you want to be if you don't tell them. So if you are the type that aren't really big about being vocal of what your goals is, then find people that you actually do confide in and at least let them know. And also not to fall into the trap of, well, this person only does this for their job. So there's no point telling them. No, tell them because you never know who that person knows. And yep. for all you know, they could be, I don't know, long-term friends with X hiring manager at XYZ company, but yet you thought they had no value to your life. So you decided not to say anything, you know? So, right. you know, definitely share, share with others what your goals are. And I would say that has been the one thing. And, you know, if you want to count PM as one career, advocacy as another career, and then even my time in fashion as a third career, that has been the one common theme throughout all those careers was that I spoke up to someone about what my goals were. And collectively, the people I spoke with were able to help um, get me to where I am today. Well, I will say in the short time that I've known you, um, it's been really cool to kind of see your trajectory change. I mean, okay, and you expressed sure. those goals to me even when we just spoke, like aspirational, like this is what I want to be doing. And then Lo and behold, like two months later, you were doing it. So um, yeah, it's April, <laughs> awesome, really, awesome insight, I think, for yeah, a lot of uh, listeners. It, it's so exciting to see all the amazing things that you're doing. And it's kind of, you Thank have you. this innate ability to do so many great things across so many different areas. Like, how do you find the time? But if anything, that's probably going to be another conversation for. Oh, another, yeah. I feel like we can talk for hours about that. That's, that's what happens when we talk to that. great people like yourself. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, but April. I, yeah, one more, one last thing. Yeah, too. yeah. I would have to say, beyond just sharing what your goals are, make sure you're having fun along the way and keep in touch with people that you do meet. Because, um, you know, even even now that I'm on a whole new team at Microsoft, I don't work with you anymore, Den. But I feel like you and I we still talk here and there, which is great. And then Courtney, I technically never really worked with you, so <laughs> I think so. I reviewed one one text back that yeah, you did. <laughs> yeah. So you know, so I feel like you know you don't have to be like full-time all the time coworkers with someone to feel like there's a need to communicate with them just keep those friendships open keep those relationships open and um you know it, it makes it makes this crazy industry a, a little easier i would say so right your your network is not time or position constrained mm -hmm. the people that you meet the amazing connections that you make you should do everything that you can to kind of keep them alive. hundred yes. percent with you. Yeah. So, April, so that was the last thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Kind of the bookend here. Uh, where can people find you at? So Twitter. Yes. Twitch? Yes. So Twitter um, at Vogue and code Twitch. My channel is also Vogue and code. And then my website is also Vogue and code.com. And then YouTube also is Vogue and code. And for all those it's V O G U E A N D. C-O-D-E, and if you get curious um, and decide to go to GitHub and find me, I do have some repos there, and that's my first and last name, April Spate, and that's A-P-R-I-L-S-P-E-I-G-H-T. And we'll make sure to include the links in the video and in the description as well, so awesome. people can find awesome. it easily. So April, thank, thank you. you so much for your time and just giving us the opportunity to interview you. Oh, thank you for having me, I appreciate it. 
Happy Easter, everybody. Yeah, happy Easter. Hope you'll stay healthy. You too.